The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Pray with me again. <clears throat> Father, you've called us to this place. Called us out of darkness and into light. us as your children. So we wait with bated breath to hear from you yet again this morning. So we ask you now to speak, Father. Your children are listening. We ask that you would now give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have said. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We'll return to your feet as we Read this morning's text from Ephesians chapter 2. 
This morning, I'm only going to read to you this 11th verse. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the hands. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You have no idea how difficult it is for me to read such a short, short portion of Scripture. So we, uh, those of you that have been with us, you know that we are continuing our march verse by verse through the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we spent our time together on the last Lord's Day hearing God's call to us to remember. It was the first of the imperatives that we'll hear here in this, here in this magnificent letter. It's a call to remember, to remember who you once were. This isn't just a, a, a broad call to the whole of humanity. We're not just having some vague picture in our mind. I'm speaking to you directly, each one of you individually, your own life. Remember who you were. Remember where you were. Remember where you were headed. That very moment when Christ called you to life. Remember. Remember according to the word of God. Don't trust your own heart. It's a liar. Don't trust your own memories. They fade. You come to the word of God and through the lens of scripture and the power of the spirit, you remember who you once were. These aren't just theories on a page. This isn't just a hypothetical. It isn't just a shell game. Yes, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, and yet still you are children of wrath. You're enemies of God, and he's calling us to remember that. I ask you this morning, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you were once alienated from God? Do you really believe that you were once at enmity with God? Do you really believe that you once walked as a child of wrath? If so, you remember it. Now, this remembrance, it isn't a remembrance that would drive us to hopelessness or despair this isn't a remembrance that's meant to drive us to shame in fact this remembrance is meant to serve our joy it's meant to elevate our worship it's meant to bring us to a deeper and fuller understanding of the satisfaction of all that God is for us in Christ this remembrance is meant to put a pep in your step make you appreciate all that you have in him to drive you to gratitude and awe and wonder that's the kind of remembrance that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. He's commanding here, remember. And he's talking about things that were particular to us as Gentile believers. He's moved away from that which was true of the whole of mankind. And now he's speaking to the Gentiles there in Ephesus and to we Gentiles here today. He's saying, remember, remember that there were once two great hurdles that had to be overcome in your salvation. One of those is the dividing wall of hostility that existed between the Jews and and the Gentiles. In addition to this, we have to remember that we were once far off from God. You need to remember that, that farness. You remember how far alienated you were from God. You need to remember that you are without God and without hope in the world. That's what you must remember. Therefore, remember. 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now he's going to immediately pick up after he talks about this particular portion, he's immediately going to come back to that word remember again. If you were here with us last week, you'll recall that I told you there are kind of five points of remembrance, five points in which Paul drives our hearts to remember what it means to be far off from God. But before he gets to those five points, he almost takes this diversion, diversion, divergence, to talk about circumcision. What does that have to do with anything? Why on Mother's Day do we have David up here reading a scripture where he has to say uncircumcision and circumcision 87 times just to make you all uncomfortable? <laughs> Paul, what are, we, what are we talking about here? Well, I submit to you that with not too much work, this text becomes not only clear, but beautiful. He's reminding us and reminding them that they were once Gentiles in the flesh. So oftentimes in scripture, you'll find that there's a comparison or a, or a contrast that is made between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. It's the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. That, that which is in the flesh, that which is common to fallen man, that which is ours in the first man, that, that which is in opposition to God. And then there is that which is in the spirit that hasn't just been born once of the dirt, but that has been born a second time from above in the flesh, and in the spirit. And we've already covered that to some degree in the first three chapters of Ephesians chapter 2. Again, that's something that's common to the whole of mankind. Following the passions of our flesh. What does he say? Living in the passions of our flesh. We lived in the flesh. We were driven by the flesh. It was the passions of the flesh that enslaved us to live a life in opposition to God. So is that all that Paul is saying here? He's just saying, remember that you Gentiles, you were in the flesh. I don't think so. See, there's another way that this word flesh can be understood. Sarks, flesh. It can also just refer to the physical body. Just the things that are visible and, and outwardly obvious. Things that can be seen with human eyes. That which is in the flesh, like your meat, right? This is flesh. And it seems to me that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. You need to remember that even in your flesh, even in that which is visible, even in that which is tangible and can be seen, you are Gentiles in the flesh. It seems obvious by the fact that he immediately goes on to talk about circumcision. He says, remember that you are Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision. And so we're going to spend our time together this morning talking about, number one, what is circumcision? I don't mean the technical ins and outs of the physical act of circumcision. I mean, what is circumcision? What was God's intention behind this sign? Why did he give it? And what was it meant to show to his people and to the world around them? Number two, we're going to seek to answer, how did the Jews understand this? We know what God intended by circumcision. I would submit scripture reveals that to us pretty clearly. But how did the Jews receive it? Particularly the first century Jews that the Gentiles here in Ephesus would have been familiar with. And then number three, what does any of this have to do with us as we sit here today? So it probably goes without saying, but circumcision is the cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. It's probably as far as we need to go. Now it's typically, in today's world, it typically happens 
like on the sec first or second day after the baby's born. I think they try to get it done unless there were some complications. They just try to get it done before you, before you go home with your, with your baby. I was, I was curious. Doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon, I guess, but I was just curious about circumcision rates in America in 2023. And so in Texas, it's about 50%. Uh, Nevada has the lowest rate. It's like 12%. Um, West Virginia has the highest rate. It's somewhere up around 80%. So on the whole, it's about 50% of people do this thing, this thing called circumcision. Did we just invent it? No, Scripture tells us this isn't just something that man came up with. It's not merely a matter of hygiene, although there do seem to maybe be some advantages to that. I think studies have shown that maybe amongst the Jewish community and people that practice circumcision, there is a decreased... Uh, decreased incidence of cervical cancer and some of these things. So maybe, yeah, there's some health benefits, some hygiene benefits to this, but ultimately it's a thing that's commanded by God. It was a thing that was commanded by God to Father Abraham. Those of you that know your Old Testament history, those of you that have walked through the book of Genesis, you know that you get to Genesis 12 and God calls a man called Abraham out of Mesopotamia. He sets this man apart. He calls him, this pagan man, he calls him unto himself. And he tells him he's going to take him to a yet unforeseen land, a good land, but an unforeseen land. And he makes some promises to the man. He says that he will make him into a great nation. He says that he will make his name great. And he says that through him will all the families of the earth be blessed. As we get to Genesis 15, we find that Abraham's having some concern about how all these things will be since he himself has not had a child. And so God promises that it won't be a slave within his household that will be his heir, but his own son will be his heir. And it's at that point that God issues this um, formal inauguration of his covenant with Abraham. He, he properly cuts the covenant. We're told that Abraham at that moment believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Whose righteousness was credited to Abraham on that day, I ask you? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was a looking forward kind of believing. It was a looking forward kind of faith that trusted that if someone's going to be righteous, it can't be me. It can't be anyone else. I know it must be one from heaven that will come and fulfill all righteousness. And so because Abraham believed the promises of God, the righteousness of Christ was credited to his account, clothed in the righteousness of Christ as if it were his. So it's at that moment that God cuts the covenant with Abraham. He takes a heifer, a goat, a ram, turtle doves, pigeons. He cuts these things in half. He separates them. Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and then he sees a, 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 a fire pot and a smoking torch pass between the two parts of the animals. It's a clear signal to Abraham, a clear signal to us that this covenant, it is based on the faithfulness of God alone. He is swearing by his own name. There's nothing higher that you can swear by. He swears by the unchanging nature of himself and his purposes and his plans and his promises. It's in essence as if what God was saying to Abraham is, if I don't hold up this covenant, may I be cut in two. May I perish like these animals. So the covenant is cut, but then we come to Genesis 16 and we see that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they begin to, Abram at this point, they begin to waffle a bit. They begin to distrust a bit God's promise. And so they believe God needs their help. Isn't that the way we work sometimes? We know that God has made these promises in scripture, but we just don't see how he can possibly do it. So he won't mind if we help him a little bit, give him a little bit of a boost. 
And so what does she do? She takes her slave girl, um, Hagar, and gives her to Abraham. She conceives and bears him a child. At this moment, Abraham is 86 years old. She bears him a child called Ishmael. Then we come to Genesis 17. It's been 13 years since that point. Abraham's 99 years old, and God comes to him and reaffirms his covenant with him. Reaffirms that he's going to have a child, a child with his wife, Sarai. And it's at that point that God looks at Abram and tells him, no longer will you be called Abram, but I will call you Abraham because you will be the father of many nations. And it's at that point, it's at that moment right there that he institutes this sign of circumcision. Genesis 17, 7, God says this. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. I tell you over and over and over again that the, the ultimate promise of this covenant of grace, the ultimate promise that God can make to any people is I will be your God and you will be my people. There's no greater promise than this. To have God as your God means that all that God is, he is for you. His power, his wisdom, his might, his goodness, his justice, his righteousness, everything that God is, he is for his people. There's no greater promise than this. So he looks at Abraham and he says, this is my covenant, an everlasting covenant that I will be your God, not just to you, but your offspring after you. Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Here's what this will look like in your life. I've already promised this covenant based on my own name and my own purposes, an everlasting covenant I've already made with you. But the sign in your flesh, the sign that you're going to carry within your own body of this covenant is going to be this circumcision. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised man who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So at this moment, Abraham is 99 years old. Ishmael is 13 years old. And they, along with all the rest of his household, they undergo this practice of physical, in the flesh, circumcision a sign in their body of the promises that God has made. Everlasting, unbreakable promises of God seen in their own flesh. And God doesn't really at this moment give, it, give any further explanation. This is just a sign, a sign of the covenant to Abraham and to all who come after him, a painful sign and a bloody sign, a sign of the necessity to be cut away from the things of the world. Almost a brand, if you will, being set apart, being marked apart unto God. It's a visible and physical and very intimate reminder of our need to be separated from all the things of the flesh, all the things of the world, all the things that are not of God. Now, we might ask why this particular body part. I think in part maybe because this is the most basic and compulsive of organs. Maybe is it because this is the body part through which all these promised generations would come? And, and as those generations come through natural procreation, is this a clear sign of their need to be cut off from the world as well? Because they are born in sin. They are brought forth in iniquity that from their father Abraham, going back to their father Adam, what they will inherit is uncleanliness. What they will inherit is depravity. What they will inherit is sin. 
So there's this constant picture, a bloody picture, an intimate picture, a violent picture of the need to be cut off from the things of the world, to be cut away from the things of the flesh and set apart unto God, all the while a reminder of God's goodness and his mercy and his promises carried around in their very flesh. This is a non-negotiable sign. He says that anyone that doesn't undergo this circumcision, they're to be cast out. They're to be cut off. They have not upheld the covenant of God. It's the initiatory right of this covenant. To refuse this permanent and visible sign, it's to show a hardness of heart. It's to show a distrust of God's promise. It's to show a disdain of God. It's to visibly show to yourself and to the world, I despise the promises of God and I don't want to be associated with him. I don't want to be known as one on whom the promises of God have come. So it's a very serious thing then for one who would come from this Jewish nation, one who would come from Father Abraham to refuse to undergo the circumcision. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. We know how serious this is because when we get to Exodus chapter 4, we see that as Moses is about to lead the people of God towards the promised land, we read that God met Abraham there and he almost killed him. What was the thing? What was the sin for which Abraham was almost killed by the hand of God himself? It's that his child was uncircumcised, the text seems to tell us. His wife Zipporah came. She cuts off the foreskin of the child and places it upon Abraham's feet. I don't know what to do with that. Don't come to me after service and ask what this means. I don't want your feet have to do with anything. I can make some guesses. But the picture is that this one called Moses that was going to be set apart by God to lead his people out of slavery through the wilderness and into the promised land, he had not done right by circumcising his child in accordance with the commandments of God. We know how serious this is. We read of Moses in Exodus 12, 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all, the, all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native in the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. He says, look, if any outsider sees the things that I have done for you, sees the Passover, Seize the parting of the Red Sea. Seize my powerful presence with you in the wilderness. And anyone desires to come in and be a part of this people, desires to sit down at the Passover table, having been covered by the blood of an innocent substitute, he may come, but he must come having been circumcised. And any of your people, it doesn't matter if they've been born to the family, it doesn't matter if they've been born into the right lineage, if they don't undergo the right of circumcision, they shall not eat of the Passover, for they have broken the covenant. You see how seriously Moses, or seriously God takes this sign. I, I belabor this point because it's clear that what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's talking about the so-called circumcision, the so-called uncircumcision. And it can seem as though, if we're not careful, as though this is a thing that the Pharisees came up with in the first century. As though this was a thing that man just invented in his own mind is a way that he thought he might be able to please God. And so we've got to be reminded that, no, this is a thing that was commanded by God, a thing that God took very, very seriously, so seriously that when the people finally do enter into the promised land, after Moses has died and Joshua takes this new generation and they cross over the Jordan and they come into the promised land, 
We read there in Joshua 5 that this new generation, those who had been born in the wilderness and therefore had not been circumcised, that God commands them to be circumcised. Before they fight their first battle, before they go and take the town called Jericho, God says to these people, you shall be circumcised. Graciously, he allows them to heal up. But this is how seriously God takes this, this mark, this sign, this symbol in the flesh that these people belong to me. It's a mark of separation, marking out God's people, the Jewish people, from the rest of the world. And it was an incredibly heartbreaking thing then for the Jewish people to find any of their own having been unequally yoked or joining their life together with any of the uncircumcised people. You remember part of the outrage of young boy David whenever he heard the taunts of the giant Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the living God? Those of you that have been here with us on Sunday night studying the life of the judge, Old Testament judge, Samson. You remember the ways in which his parents were so outraged when he came home and said that he had found a beautiful Philistine woman that he wanted to marry. You remember, by the way, the words that Samson said to his parents. She seems right in my eyes. But you remember the, the words of Samson's father and his mother to him in Judges 14.3. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? They don't bear the mark. They don't bear the sign. They aren't of the people of God. We see it in their flesh. This was God's design for God's people. Samson had sinned. God's design for God's people is that they would be cut out, marked out, branded, set apart from the rest of the world and unto him. He commanded that you must obey this. Now this sign, signs by definition, what is the purpose of a sign? And I think that some of our theology can get pretty wacky if we don't really just slow down at this point. What's the purpose of a sign? To point to something. One of the reasons that I think that Bucky's is so successful is that they put signs starting like 350 miles before their store. Bucky's is coming. Bucky's is coming. Cleanest restrooms, best beaver nuggets. Bucky's is coming. They put these signs all the way along the way. But, but here's what would be highly inappropriate. If we're driving along the road and I see a Bucky sign and say, good, I've been needing to go to the bathroom, and I get out and just go on the Bucky sign. The sign points to something else. The sign points to a reality. The sign points to a substance. The sign points to something beyond itself. For many people, we miss this. We either completely throw away the signs or we miss their ultimate purpose. And so we know we don't have to guess what the purpose of this sign of circumcision was. We don't even have to wait until we get to the New Testament. There's many of these signs that we see in the Old Testament that we can't really wrap our mind around until the coming of Christ Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that's to the fullest extent that's true. But there's some of them where there's even greater hints. Where God doesn't wait till the coming of Christ to reveal to us, here's the thing this sign is meant to point to. Here's the thing this sign is meant to drive you to. And circumcision is one of those. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. This is... The recounting of the law, the second giving of the law to this second generation that's about to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy 10. 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart and love on your fathers and chosen their offspring after you of all the peoples on the earth that you would be his on this day. He's saying to the people, listen, what does God command of you but to love him with all that you are? To love him with all of your heart, to obey these commandments that he has called you. But you've got to remember that he loves you because he loves you. He has chosen you because he has chosen you. God owned all the heavens and all the earth and all the people. He could have chosen any people. It wasn't because you're the best. It wasn't because you're the mightiest. It wasn't because you're the prettiest. It wasn't because you're the most faithful. God chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. So listen to the response that should come from this in verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. All throughout the Old Testament, we will see, not just from the lips of Moses, we will see the prophets coming to the people of God. And over and over and over again, he is calling out to the people and he is saying, you are a people with uncircumcised hearts. You are a people with uncircumcised lips. You're a people with uncircumcised ears. Surely that sounds familiar. Father God, give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe what you have said. Over and over and over again, even as he calls out to the pagan nations, the call to the pagan nations, the call to the non-believing nations, it isn't hurry up and be circumcised in your flesh. It's come be circumcised in your hearts. And he compares this lack of circumcision to a being stubborn, a stubbornness, a hard-heartedness, a lack of love for God. So over and over and over again, Jeremiah 4, remember the Lord, separate from all detestable things, remove the foreskin of your hearts. It's a call to regeneration. It's a call to be made anew. It's a call to be born again. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart. Having reminded them, they did nothing to earn this love and favor of God. But this is a sign to them. This thing that is in their flesh, it's a sign to them of God's unmerited favor for them. It's a sign to them of God's love for them. But it's a sign that's meant to point forward to what's ultimately needed, and that is a circumcision of the heart. But we know that this is not a thing that a man can do. Listen, I'll be too crude, but... All you need is a scalpel or a flint knife, apparently, to circumcise the flesh. But it's only the hand of God that can separate, that can circumcise the heart, that can cut away the things of the heart that don't belong, that can remove you from detestable things, that can cause you to be new, born again. We know, again, that this is not a thing that man can do, and that's the point. This picture in the flesh is meant to remind them of the thing that needs to happen in their heart. It's meant to drive them to call out to God. But this is the promise of God is that he would be the one to do this. As we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, as God is promising to the people all the blessings that would come upon them and all the curses that would fall upon them if they break this covenant. They wander away in sin. And the Lord says in Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. 
God will do this thing that he is commanding of you. This is at the very heart of the, Revela of the, of the Reformation. God, command what you will and enable what you command. God, command us to do the thing that you want us to do and then come upon us and enable us to do it. So that over and over and over again, God is saying, you must be circumcised in your heart. You must be cut away from the things of this world in your heart. And the people would continually cry out. They should at least continually cry out, but we can't. But we can't. We love the things of this world. We're enslaved to sin. God, you must cut away the foreskin of our heart. You must circumcise our heart. And God is here with that promise saying, this is exactly what I will do. So that's the purpose of circumcision. That was the reason why God has given his people this sign, this seal, this symbol of circumcision. But is that how the Jewish people received it? Particularly the first century Jewish people that the Apostle Paul and some of these in Ephesus would have been familiar with. Well, the answer is no, that for many of them, they wore this as a badge of pride. The reality is, just like so many other signs, these people began to trust in the things of the flesh. And they did not allow it to drive them to the deeper need of their heart. Did not drive them to consider their heart. To really weigh the things of their life and to cry out to God for mercy. Instead, instead of considering their own worthlessness, instead of considering their own unworthiness, and instead of considering the fact that God has set his love upon them despite their demerit, instead it caused them to turn and look at all the Gentile dogs around them and thumb their noses. Because we are the people of the circumcision. It took a thing that was meant to be a difference, that was meant to be a marker, that was meant to be a gift of God, and they turned it into a dividing wall. They turned it into, again, I'd say, to a matter of pride. What well, Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. I want you to see that word call there twice. It's called, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So he's saying, firstly, remember that you were the ones who were called. By who? By the Jews. The Jews called you the uncircumcision. Actually, the, the, the technical word here is just the foreskins. Not allowed to call the football team the redskins anymore. I don't think you can look at an entire race of people and call them the foreskins. But that's what they would say to them. But he also turns this called on the, the circumcision. The NASB, if you read something other than the ESV, the NASB says that you were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. The NIV says you were called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. Yes, I'm tired of saying the word circumcision, but give me 15 more minutes and we're done. The so-called circumcision, those who call themselves the circumcision. They called themselves this. He goes on to say that this is a circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. In the flesh, not the heart. By hands in scripture. Whenever we see this description of something that is being made by human hands, it is made by the hands of men, it is almost always contrasted with the true and the heavenly and the spiritual. You read through the book of Hebrews, you'll find this kind of teaching over and over again. Hebrews 9:11, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, a tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. He says there's a greater tent, there's a greater tabernacle, there's a greater temple, there's a greater place, and it's not one made by human hands, it's heavenly, it's spiritual, it's eternal. 
The Apostle Paul is saying these who call themselves the circumcision, they are reveling in a circumcision that's made only in the flesh, not in the heart. It's made only in the flesh and it is done by the hands of men. The reality is that many of the Jewish people, they had stopped at the sign. They had not come all the way to the substance. And what you find is those who come all the way to the substance, there's no room for haughtiness. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance or looking down at others. But those who stop at the sign, those who trust in the sign instead of coming to the substance, that they, were the, they will be the ones who trust in the flesh. They will be the ones who build a dividing wall like this. And again, we saw this all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. I want you to think about John 8 when he's talking about those who abide in him and abide in his word. They'll know the truth and the truth will set him free. What was the response of the Jewish people? You would set us free. We've always been free. We're the offspring of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. Jesus sadly has to break it to him. No, if Abraham was your father, you would do the things that Abraham did. But as it is, you're a child of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's will. He's reminding these people that being biological children of Abraham, having this mark in your flesh, this does not guarantee your access to the kingdom of heaven. This is not what it means to be a true spiritual child of Abraham, is to just have this mark in your flesh made with human hands. But many of these Jews believe that it did. As long as I'm circumcised, all things are good. As long as there's this physical mark upon my body, then surely I'll have access to heaven. That all the stuff that we read in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, those have nothing to do with me because I bear the mark. Because I belong to Father Abraham. They've come close, but not come all the way. You remember Jesus' word in Mark 12, 34. He says to the people there that after they've recited him, what is the greatest of the commandments? He says to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Beloved, I would remind you that being not far from the kingdom of God is being eternally separated from the kingdom of God. It doesn't do you a lot of good. So in Romans 2, we see the Apostle Paul kind of unpacking all of this for us. Romans 2, God is speaking to the Apostle Paul and he has warned the Jews that resting in the mere possession of the circumcision and along with it, the law. Those who had the circumcision also had the law of God and they wore that as a, as a mark of pride. They wore that as an assurance that salvation is theirs. And he reminds them in verse 11 of Romans 2 that God shows no partiality. That this very law that they now proclaim, it's only going to serve to condemn them in their sin. But then in verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. This circumcision that you bear in your body, this mark in your flesh, it is indeed of value if you obey the law of God. Now the Apostle Paul is the king of preaching justification by faith alone. He's not here saying, if you can work a perfect, uh, a perfect life of obedience, then you can be justified. Then you can be saved. So it's the mark in the flesh, plus it's the works of your own hands that's going to earn you salvation. That's not at all the picture here. The picture is that a changed life, that a heart that's been circumcised, that's going to be a life that fleshes itself out in a life of obedience to the law. He goes on to say, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. To be uncircumcised is to be cast outside of the camp, remember? You can't come to the Passover table. You can't be counted among God's people of promise if you're an uncircumcised person. And he's saying, though you may be circumcised in your flesh, if your heart has not been circumcised, if you have not been regenerated, if this is not showing itself in these acts of obedience, then that might as well be your uncircumcision. 
I go a step further than this and submit to you that to bear the sign in your body while living as one who is uncircumcised is only going to stand against you in greater judgment. I want you to think about this. Think about a wedding ring. This is a mark of something. This is a sign of something much greater beyond itself. This is a sign of a union between myself and my wife. The reality is, I wear this thing, I'm married. I take the thing off, I'm still married. I put the thing on a kid, it doesn't make him married to my wife. But the reality is, when I choose to put this thing upon my finger and I walk around, I'm sending a signal to my wife and a signal to my heart and a signal to the world, I belong to her. And therefore, this ring will stand in greater judgment if I dishonor those vows. If I've got the mark in my flesh, counting myself as one of his while living like I'm not. Does that not bring down greater curse upon my head? So if a man, this is verse 26, Romans chapter 2. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He's saying, and if there's a guy out here that's not circumcised, he doesn't have the mark of flesh, mark on his flesh made by hands, and yet he obeys the, the laws of God. He shows that he has been born anew. He's been regenerated. He's been circumcised in his heart. Then his uncircumcision becomes circumcision. The only kind of circumcision that really matters. Y'all tracking? Andrew, nod your head. Andrew will explain all this afterwards if it's not making sense. <laughs> then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written code and circumcision but break the law. You stand with haughtiness because of the mark in your flesh. You stand in haughtiness because you have the law of God while these uncircumcised Gentiles actually keep the law. Actually show they've been circumcised in their heart. And in the last days it is they who will stand in judgment against you. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What does it mean to be true Israel? What does it mean to be the true offspring of Abraham? What does it mean to actually be heirs of all these promises of the covenant? It's not bloodlines, it's not physical marks, it's not anything that you do. It's the circumcision of the heart done by God, not the hands of men. That's the picture. That's the purpose. That's the thing that the Jews had so sadly missed. That's what David was reading here in Romans chapter 4. This picture that it's not that. It's not bloodlines. It's not anything external that you do. And to make this clear to us, he drives us to Abraham. He says, when did Abraham receive this mark? Did the promises of God come to Abraham? Did the imputed righteousness of Christ come to Abraham because he received the mark? No. It was before he was circumcised to make clear to you people that it's not about the circumcision. That it's not about the sign. It's not about the symbol. It's about the substance so that Abraham could be the father. Does that mean if you're circumcised, you have no place? No, you may. Does that mean if you're uncircumcised, you don't have a place? No, you may. The question is one of the heart. If you trusted in the promises of God, if you believed God and had it counted to you as righteousness. Now we know that these, many of these Jew, Jews, these Judaizers is what they're often called. There are people that demanded that in order to become a Christian, you had to undergo this circumcision. Bless you. They wanted to impose this sign upon these people as evidence, outward evidence that they belonged to God. But Philippians 3.2, Paul says, look out for the dogs. Isn't this an interesting turn? They spoke to the Gentile dogs. And he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision. You may have it in the flesh, but we are the circumcision, whether circumcised or uncircumcised physically. We are the circumcised, those who revel in the spirit of God, those who glory in Christ Jesus. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Again, circumcision is the sign, not the substance. It's not the sign that counts. Now we stand here on the backside of this in a day when the new covenant has come, a better covenant, better promises, but we do still have a covenant sign. We have the initiatory sign of baptism. Now I don't have time to unpack this. I'm just putting a marker in it. I told the staff this week, I want to go over some of this with them to make sure that we're all thinking the same thoughts. I, I made it very clear that we are not Baptists just because our baptistry won't hold babies and it's too deep. We have actual convictions in terms of why we do and do not baptize infants. But there are some people, there are some of our brethren, there are some people that think all the same thoughts we do about the sovereignty of God and about the ways of salvation and about the fact that only God can circumcise the heart and the necessity of faith and regeneration. All of those things, all of those things. But what they see is that this initiatory sign of circumcision has been directly replaced by baptism. I submit to you that's not the case. That the sign, the sign of physical and fleshly and made by hand circumcision, it is fulfilled in the circumcision of the heart, in the regeneration. And that while we do have a correlation between the circumcision in the flesh and baptism, they're not one for one. That what we undergo in baptism is a sign to the world of the circumcision of the heart that's already happened. It's a confession to the world. It's an outward evidence that we have been converted by the work of God and calling us to faith. But I submit to you that no matter what you believe about baptism, whether you believe it's appropriate to baptize babies as we do not as Baptists, or whether you believe that it's only appropriate to baptize born-again believers who can make a verbal and outward confession of faith, either way, we can still fall prey to the same trap. We can still find ourselves as a people who find our faith who find our hope, who find our assurance in a baptism made with hands. What is the correlation? What's the direct correlation? Again, I tell you, it's not circumcision to water baptism. It's circumcision to being baptized in the spirit. So if we're not careful, we can fall in these same types of traps. Sure, I'm a sinner, but I've been baptized. Sure, I run like the world, but I've walked the aisle and I've said the prayer and I've done the thing. And I submit to you that this is not just a trap that Jewish people fall into. It's not just a trap that people that baptize infants fall into. Go to any Southern Baptist church, look at the church rolls, look at the roster, look at the number of people that have been baptized, then look at the number of butts in seats. Or more importantly than this, look at the number of changed lives. And you will find a massive divergence. So we must be reminded it's not the things that are done with hands that matter. It's the matter of the heart. It's the work of the spirit. I might say to you this morning that your baptism, when you walk in unbelief, when you walk in faithlessness, when you show yourself to be despisers of the law of God, when you reveal that your heart has not been circumcised, that you're not filled with the spirit of God, that it's in that day that I might look to you and say your baptism has become unbaptism.
can't trust it. You can't trust that just because you've undergone this external right, that somehow you've got access to the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, what I find is that for some people, those who have undergone this external right, they're the most resistant to the gospel. The people who should be celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ, who get the most frustrated when someone stands up and rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ, are those who are trusting in their baptism. If I can say it this way, the hardest people to evangelize are those that have been baptized. The hardest people to lead to Christ are those who are convinced they're already in Christ. I've got to speed up now. That, that, that answers the first three questions, but I've got a bonus for you here. Because you might be tempted to wonder, okay, fair enough. So God had a good purpose for this right. He had a good purpose for this sign. It was meant to point to the substance. And the Jews, they got it. Some of them, they got it twisted, they got it messed up, they trusted in the flesh, they trusted in the sign, they trusted in the picture, and they didn't come all the way to the, to the substance. And, and the reason that it has something to say to us today is because we too have a sign, initiatory sign and seal of this new covenant that's been placed upon us, and we can fall prey to some of these same kind of traps. We might be tempted to say, then what's the value in the sign? If the sign doesn't guarantee our access into heaven, if the sign doesn't guarantee our access into the kingdom of God, and if for some that sign can become a stumbling block, a problem, a, a, a matter of pride that causes them to cover their ears, that gives them some false sense of assurance, then what in the world is the benefit to the sign? Is what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he says, Therefore, remember at one time that you Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, is all he's doing, is all he's addressing here is the division between the Gentile and the Jew? Is all he's doing is giving another picture to the Jewish non-believers that you've got to come all the way, that the sign isn't enough? Is he saying that the circumcision was of no value to the Jewish people? Surely not. Romans chapter 3, right after talking about all that he said there in chapter 2 about circumcision becoming uncircumcision, he says, Romans 3, 1, then what advantage has the Jew? It's a question you should be asking. Of what value is circumcision? What's the value then? If all the things you've just said are true, of what value is circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, even if everyone else were a liar. He's, he's saying, firstly, he's he seems to be drawing a correlation here between circumcision and the oracles of God, the word of God. I would submit to you because that's the visible word. What are we doing whenever we're baptizing? We're showing forth the word of God. It's a visible picture of the word of God, the gospel being preached before your eyes. This is what the circumcision was meant to be, a visible word. Think about this. It, in, in Jewish society, in the ancient Near East, you would have had how many kids in the average house? So you're the older brother and you've now watched six of your younger siblings undergo circumcision. Every time you've had before your eyes this picture, this visible word, this reminder, we're not like the rest of the world. We must be set apart. We must cut away that which doesn't belong. It's a visible word. And what he's saying here is, so what if some people have proven to be faithless? So what if some people have stopped short of the substance by trusting in the sign and the sign alone? This doesn't make God untrue. And this doesn't make the gift any less of a gift. 
It is a gift of God to grow up in a home where you've observed these things. It is a gift of God to have grown up in a home where the word of God is preached. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, I don't know what's going to happen to every one of our children. I don't know whether by the grace of God he is going to save every single one that he's entrusted to our home. But I do know this. They are blessed to be there. They are blessed to hear the word of God. They are blessed to see the word of God. They are blessed to sit under the teaching of the word of God. And even if they or we prove to be faithless, this does not nullify the faithfulness of God. We must remember that he doesn't just ordain the ends, but the means as well. And it's a gift, it's a gracious gift of God. He has seen fit to place those children into our home. That we can shower them with the word of God, visible and audible. We can shower them with the word of God. Praying desperately that he would use this, that by the hand of a master surgeon, he would reach in and he would circumcise their hearts. So no, we don't disdain, we don't despise, we don't think little of the sign just because some of us have abused it. Praise God for the gift. So I'll conclude here. Colossians 2, verse 11 is the promise from God to all his people. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. But he says to every single one of you who count yourself in Christ Jesus, every single one of you who find yourself walking in repentant faith, he says to you, you have been circumcised. The reason you sit here today is you do, because I have done the work that needs to be done. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. On many levels, this is not an easy lesson to preach or an easy lesson to sit through. And yet, Father, I trust that you have done your work. We know it's not about the skill of a man. It's not about the ability of a preacher. It's about the power of your word and the working of your spirit. So I pray, Father, that you have overcome all distractions this morning that you have not allowed me to in any way get in the way, but that, Father, this word is struck home. It will take root in hearts of good soil and that lives will be changed. Father, if there's any among us this morning who have not yet been circumcised in the heart, particularly those who may be deceived based on some outward right, Father, I desperately ask you to save them. I ask you to send your spirit do what only you can do, to call them to life. Father, we ask you to do this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.